Well, we talked last week about the book of Ephesians that we're starting, which centers around a city called Ephesus. Ephesus is a whole lot like Vancouver. You'll remember from last time, it's a port city, a center of trade, a wealthy, affluent city, full of religious and spiritual ideas. And they love the idea of multiple gods, but they're not really cool with the idea of one god. You may have noticed here that Everyone here is very spiritual in the Vancouver area, but if you try to nail it down to one God, people start getting offended. And this was the case in Ephesus. You might remember as well that the center of worship was a goddess named Diana who had the most uh, profitable of methods of worship, which was temple prostitution. And so basically, if you wanted to do your act of worship, you wouldn't go to church, you wouldn't go to confession. You'd go down, get an afternoon slot at the temple, and meet with a temple prostitute and worship the goddess Diana. As I said last time, um, historians have speculated that there may be a link between temple prostitution and the wild popularity of the religion. They think that there may be a link. They're not entirely sure, but uh, it's possible. And so the Christians in this city were beginning to experience something that many of us at one time or another have experienced as well. They begin looking around them at everybody who is indulging themselves, pursuing anything that gives them a momentary high, and they're saying, what is so great about this faith that we have? What's, what's so great about Christianity? I don't know if you've ever been in that place, or, or, or maybe, I'm not going to ask for you to raise your hand, uh, maybe you've been there and you don't want to admit it, but you've been in that place where you look around and you begin to feel like all it feels like is that I'm missing out on things. I have this guilt, I have this spiritual baggage, but everybody else seems to be really happy. So, so what's going on? And that's where we're going to start this morning, because Paul addresses that spectacularly in First Ephesians, and we're going to start in verse 3. It says this, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Right off the bat, he's reminding everybody of the incredible truth that we have a Father in heaven. And he's done great things for us. Even better than that, than that, he's blessed us above and beyond belief. And the verses we look at today are going to reveal to us how our Heavenly Father has blessed us. It goes on and it says, Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What Paul is doing is he's referring first to this realm called the heavenly places. The heavenly places are not the stars. The heavenly places are not heaven and hell. But the heavenly places is the spiritual dimension that exists all around us. Outside of space and outside of time. It's a term used in the Bible to describe the spiritual realm. And so Paul is saying, first of all, Remember that everything that you see around you is not the true nature of reality. It's not the true nature of reality. There is a place called the heavenly realms, and that is the true nature of reality. This is not our ultimate home. This is not where the most important things are actually happening. They're happening in this place called the heavenly places, the spiritual realm. And Paul says, in that realm, in that place, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Paul is saying, let me open your eyes and beg you to see what you really have in Jesus Christ. Stop looking around you and start looking through everything and begin to see the reality of the world around you. 
If we could only see the way we are right now before Christ, no guilt, no shame, his children. If we could get the smallest glimpse of the eternity that awaits us, the glory of God that awaits us, we would be completely overwhelmed. What we have in God is indescribable and incomparable to anything we see around us in the world today. And that's what Paul is saying. Have you really all forgotten that? Have you really all forgotten that? Paul goes on and reveals the first of these blessings that we have in Christ. He says in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What a verse. I mean, we read over that and we say, that's neat. That's, that's neat. It's just something in Scripture. But the verse is saying, and this is your first fill-in on your outline, it's saying that before I was even born, my heavenly Father planned me and chose me to belong to him. He chose me before I was even born to belong to him. He chose me to be here today to be reminded of that. And the implications of that statement are simply staggering. The first being, I am not an accident. I'm not an accident. You're not an accident. You were planned before the world was ever made. You're not a biological reproductive byproduct. You're here by the design of your creator who has good things planned for you. The second implication is that God chose me. God chose you. Did you ever feel as a child the sting of being chosen late or last or not at all? Maybe there was a PE class or some kind of party game going on where you chose teams and you were just the last person picked. That hurts. That's brutal. But maybe you felt the euphoria of being the first person picked. And you probably experienced what I did as a kid, which is you don't immediately identify with the plight of the person who's the last person to be picked. You're just like, sweet, it's not me. First person picked. Yeah. Maybe you've experienced that. But, but what manner of joy should we experience when we realize that God, the King of kings, the God Almighty, the maker of the universe, that God who needs nothing, lacks nothing, wants for nothing, that God chose you and I. What level of joy should we experience over that? I need to let you in on an old family argument that exists in Christianity. Old family argument. And this argument goes like this. One side says, we choose God by our own free will. God's not any part of it. I make the decision myself. I choose God. And the other side says, no, you don't choose God. God chooses you. You're not even capable of choosing God unless he chooses you first. And this is an issue where you might hear it and think, oh, it doesn't seem that important. Churches have split over this. Denominations have split over this. There's fights on Bible college campuses happening right now over this issue. And so we're going to dive into it. We're just going to wade right in. And I promise when we're done, you're going to be able to enter into those discussions with a, a level of insight that is going to shock the people bringing up the subject. So the first doctrine is called Predestination, Calvinism, election, and various other terms. This idea that God has chosen us. There's no free will. You're wearing the shirt you're wearing today because God predestined it. The other idea is called Arminianism. And this is the idea that it's all your own choice. It's all your own decision. So which is it? Which is it? And the, the truth is that it's both. It's both. And we have to deal with it because Ephesians says we're chosen before the foundations of the world. It's both. The Bible teaches very plainly in places like Ephesians that we have been chosen 
There's not a whole lot of different ways you can take the word chosen and turn it around. But then you have verses like John 3.16, which we all know, which say, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Scripture says it's the will of God that none should perish. So we have these two different views in Scripture, and Scripture teaches both. Now, if, if I were go to have, go and have a one-on-one -on -one talk with Stephen Hawking, just talk about the universe, you know, share a couple of thoughts, Dr. Hawking. And I came out of that and I said, you know, I, I got to be honest. There were like a few things that I didn't quite understand that he shared. Just a few. Your reaction would not be, dude, you're an idiot. You would be like, only a few? That, that's awesome. That's pretty great. It's a pretty great level of insight. I mean, it's Stephen Hawking. But when it comes to God, we tend to have the approach, well, if I can't understand everything, it's not acceptable. Or I must be able to understand everything. I must be able to break it down so that I can understand it. Now, if we're willing to accept a certain amount of mystery talking to another human being and realize that they may have some insights that go beyond our comprehension, shouldn't we be a little more comfortable with God who made everything, who doesn't talk about the universe but can tell you, yeah, I did it like this. That God, shouldn't we be a little more comfortable realizing that maybe we won't understand everything? Let's shift our perspective and view God the right way. He's so far and so high above us. And so what God has done in the issue of salvation, free will, election, what God has done is he's given us little insights in Scripture, statements that are true. God doesn't want anyone to perish. Anyone who believes in Jesus will die, but, and, will die and go to heaven. We've been chosen before the foundations of the earth. God has prepared good things for us to do before we were even born. We've got all these statements, and it's like a connect-the-dots puzzle. But there's no numbers on any of the dots. There's just the dots. You can look at the dots. And it starts getting messed up when people say, no, I'm going to make a picture, man. It's a dolphin. And another guy says, it's not a dolphin. It's the Eiffel Tower. And it's because they're connecting dots where God has not given numbers. And God never said, here's some clues. Blessed is the man who figureth it out. God did not say that. He just gave us a level of insight. And I really believe that the offer of life in Jesus and God is available to everyone. But God has also especially chosen some to belong to him and do his work. So it can be both and we can rest and we can say, you know what? God is good. Everybody say, God is good. Here's another idea for you. It's like a door and you look at the door from one side and it says, everyone welcome. Everyone welcome. Anyone can go through this door. Oh, awesome. And you walk through the door and you look back and there's a sign on the other side of the door when you walk in that says, you were chosen before the foundations of the earth. You're like, wait, wait. But on this side it said, everyone was welcome. But now I'm here, I was chosen. And you get to this point and that kind of sums up the whole issue. This is your brain. This is God. There's a discrepancy. And so we need to just rest in the fact that God is God. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. His ways are past finding out. Do you really want a God that's so small that you can counsel him? I don't think that would be any kind of God at all. Well, maybe you're here and you're thinking, I, I don't like this idea. I don't like this idea. Well, uh, what if I'm not chosen? 
Well, then choose him. He chose you. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, you're probably not chosen. That's how it works. <laughs> but this is where we leave it. Are you more compassionate than God? Are you more loving than God? Have you paid a greater price to bring people into your family than God has paid through Jesus? None of us are. So however God works this out, we can trust in his compassion. We can trust in his love. And that's what we choose to do. It's a huge, huge question. But in the middle of it, we mustn't lose the wonder of the simple fact that you and I were chosen to belong to God before the foundations of the earth were even laid. That's incredible. That's the best kind of being picked that you could ever hope to have. Look at the person next to you and say, he chose you. Come on, you better do it. I'm going to make you do it three times unless you do it right now. Say, he chose you. He chose you. I'm so thankful he chose me. I hope you're thankful that he chose you. This is the first blessing we have in Jesus Christ that Paul points out. Now, what did he, what did he choose us for? Let's keep going in Ephesians. It says that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We should be holy and blameless before him in love. This verse is not a threat. This is not God saying, I chose you, so you better be holy and blameless. Better be holy and blameless. This verse is a promise. It's an incredible promise. This verse is literally our destiny. This is our destiny, to be holy and blameless before him, the Father, in love. Uh, on the day of judgment, we're not going to be standing before God trying to say, I was a good person. I know I was better than that guy. We're not going to be doing that. We're going to be standing before God holy and blameless, not fearing judgment, but we're going to be standing before him in love. The truth is that we are guilty, and the guilty verdict was rendered, but it wasn't rendered to us. It was rendered to Jesus. It was done for Jesus. He got everything that we deserved. Let that sink in for a minute. He got everything that we deserved. That's what Jesus did for us. Are you feeling blessed yet? You're feeling blessed. Even more amazing, you can put this on your outline, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, we become holy and blameless before him in love right now. Right now. When we accept him as our Savior, we become holy and blameless before him in love right now. If you've ever wondered how God sees you, now you know. Underline it in your Bible if you need to. But if you're ever wondering how God sees you, when you belong to him, he sees you as holy and blameless. You are in the righteousness of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, not the goodness of yourself. God sees you through the lens of what Jesus has done for you. That's how he sees you. That's why in scripture it says we don't have to come to him ashamed, but we can come before him boldly. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come boldly before Jesus because we are holy and blameless through him right now. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be ashamed. We're covered by what Jesus has done for us. And this means that we have the power to be holy. We have the power to be holy. Put this on your outline. He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you that way. Through Christ, we have the power to change. God doesn't say, change, figure it out. 
But he says, I've given you the power, I've given you the ability through the Holy Spirit to change. Have you ever noticed that we love to even use our, our ethnic upbringing as an excuse for things like anger? I'm sorry, man, it's, uh, it's the Dutch in me, you know? Oh, I'm sorry, it's the, uh, it's the Puerto Rican in me, I can't, can't really help it. And have you ever noticed that every ethnic group seems to have an anger issue? Everyone says that. They're like, it's the Chinese in me, man. You know, it's like, oh, except Canadians. But we all come from somewhere else. So everybody loves to say, you know, I wish I could do it, but, you know, it's just the way I am. I had an angry dad, you know. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we don't have to be slave or make excuses for the things that have been flowing through our lives. We have the power to change through Jesus. We have the power to change through Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, and I love it. He said, we are chosen not because we are holy, but that we may be made holy. The election, the choosing, precedes the character. So God chooses you before you ever even start to change. And it is indeed the moving cause in producing the character. What an incredible, incredible concept that the choosing comes before the change. Every other faith, you have to change to climb the ladder. You have to change to reach God. Jesus says, no, you get me first, and then I will do the changing within you. It's different to every other faith out there. I hope you're feeling blessed as we're studying through this. Verse 5, it says, He has predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. And here we see again that word, that idea that we were predestined to belong to our Heavenly Father. It says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And just as our, our, our DNA is unique, your thumbprint is unique, God's plan for your life is unique to you. He chose you, He saw everything coming in your life. And you're never at the place where God says, I had a good plan, but you screwed it up, and I haven't written the next plan yet, so figure it out. God chose you, and here's the amazing part. He chose you knowing everything about you. He chose you knowing how long you'd run from him. He chose you knowing how many times you'd turn your back on him and go back even after he'd revealed himself to you. He chose you knowing that you would doubt and choose to trust yourself rather than him again and again and again. Knowing all that, he chose you. He chose you. It's amazing. It's a, it's a goodness that we can't even wrap our minds around. He chose you. He chose me. His word tells us that his plans for us are good. You can put that on your outline. His plans for us are good. Sometimes we worry that, that, that God's plans for us are, I have great plans for you. I'm going to send you to Africa to be poor forever and work with little children and be miserable. But it's my will. We don't have to worry about that. I remember being 16, and, and, and I talked to God, and, and I just said, God, you know, I, uh, I just want to be completely focused on you. And so next person I date, I want that to be the person I marry. I'm going to trust you to bring that person along. I prayed that prayer in faith, but at the same time, in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm going to be a 40-year-old virgin one day. I know exactly where this is going. God's going to be like, super, that's exactly what I was looking for. Now we don't have to worry about that whole thing, and... Some people have that calling. I, I do not. I have five children. Um, but I doubted the goodness of God. I doubted the goodness of God. And here's what you can trust. You can trust that God's plan matches up perfectly to the passions that he's put inside you when he created you. 
He hasn't given you a passion for something and then said, but here's the thing, I'm going to call you to do something completely different that's going to make you miserable, and I will be glorified in your suffering. It's not the heart of God. It's not the heart of a father. I would never want that for any of my kids. And our Heavenly Father is a much better dad than I am. Predestination is an incredible, incredible idea. But what relationship has he predestined us for? How do we relate to God? What's the idea? Take a look at this. It says that he's predestined us to be sons and daughters. He's predestined us to be sons and daughters. I don't know if if you did this when you were a kid, if you had a sibling. I had a sister, and, and my sister's ultimate jab at me when I was really grating on her would be to say, you're not my brother anymore. I was two years older than her, so my mind was much more developed. So I was able to counter, there's nothing you can do to stop me being your brother. That's what's up. You know, which would just infuriate her. She'd be like, no, no, you can't be my brother anymore. I'd be like, there's nothing you can do about it. There's not even a form you can fill out. I'm your brother forever. Ha <laughs> ha And that was my, uh, that was my go-to comeback. She would usually cry, and my mom would tell me that I shouldn't threaten her by reminding her that I'm her brother. So, <laughs> so yeah. but for those of us who have kids, we know as well that there's nothing our kids can ever do to stop being our kids, right? We, we know that. The first time you... You hold a child uh, in your arms that God has given you and given your family. You are struck by the realization that you will love this child forever. And there is nothing they can ever do to change that. They have the ability to break your heart a thousand times. But there's no number where you stop calling them your son. You stop calling them your daughter. I tell my kids all the time because I believe it's the most important thing you could ever tell your kids as a parent. I tell them I'll always love you no matter what. No matter what. And I do that because I know that one day they're going to make some absolutely terrible decisions. Terrible, terrible decisions. They just are, no matter what I do. And in those moments, I want to be able to tell them the same thing I've been telling them their whole lives. I love you no matter what. Let's start there. And that's the relationship that we have with God. And we didn't enter this relationship because of anything that we did. We entered this relationship because of what he did. So we didn't qualify for this relationship with Jesus. He qualified us for a relationship with him. You'll always be a son. You'll always be his daughter no matter what. This is really important. You can put this on your outline. Once we enter the family of God, we cannot lose our salvation. And this is called the doctrine of eternal security. Whenever you doubt this, whenever you wonder, am I I still saved? Am I really saved? Remember that out of all the ways God could have chosen to describe his relationship to us, he chose to describe us as adopted sons and daughters. Not hired employees. Not people with a contract that could be terminated. He chose to describe the relationship as father to son, father to daughter. That relationship cannot be broken. It's a blood relationship. And remember as well, if we entered this relationship through Jesus, how can we break this relationship by our own actions? Our own actions didn't get us into this relationship. Jesus did. So how could our actions break this relationship? They can't. It's eternal security. It tells us that it's our destiny to be adopted and be a part of his family. And now Paul reveals some of the Father's heart. Why has the Father done all this? Why has he done this? In Ephesians, it keeps going, and it says, according to the good pleasure of his will. 
It's because it's who he is. This is the nature of God. He's just that good. He's just that kind. He's just that gracious, and it pleases him to be that way. In verse 6, it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And the idea is that grace is undeserved kindness. So why did he do this? He did it because it's who he is, and he did it because he wanted to stir up within us an attitude of thankfulness, of gratitude, that we would respond by praising God and saying, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you've done, God. That's why he did it. And at the end of our teaching, we're going to have more time in worship. I want to encourage you to let the word of God that we're studying today move in your heart. Let God overwhelm you with this kindness. Just stop and begin to think through these things. You've been adopted. You've been chosen. You have a father in heaven that loves you. And when you belong to him, you will always belong to him. And just allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you as we worship in a little bit. But through Jesus, you've been made holy and blameless. You can come before God. You don't have to be scared. You don't have to be ashamed. You've been chosen to belong to his family. And as verse 6 finishes, it tells us what his grace has done for us. It says, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. The beloved is Christ. So his grace has made us accepted, accepted by God. And you know, in other places in Scripture, it calls us, his church, beloved. And the reason is that God the Father loves nobody more than Jesus the Son. Jesus the Son is beloved by the Father. And we are beloved by Jesus. And so God the Father considers us beloved as well. It's incredible. It's incredible. I hope you're feeling blessed. Accepted means he loves us where we are now. Accepted. Not pre-qualified. Not just enough to get you into the office and then try and raise the interest rate. You're not pre-qualified. You're accepted in Christ. Where you are right now. The calling comes before the change. That's why God is so good. But check this out when you're outlined. If you don't understand and know that you're chosen and accepted, you won't be able to treat anybody else as though they're chosen and accepted. You won't be able to Treat anybody else as though they're chosen and accepted. And that's the reason that we treat each other well, no matter what background we come from. Because every single one of us has been chosen and accepted by God. And so has the person next to you and the person on the other side. And if they've been accepted by God, how can we reject them? If you've been accepted by God, how can I reject you? Because the truth is we're all equal under Christ. None of us came into this relationship with Christ based on our actions. None of us have that card in our wallet, right? You know, yeah, you, uh, you came to know Jesus through the blood of Jesus. I came to know him through good works. I was just good enough. None of us have that card that we can pull out. It's the starting point of Christianity that we all need Jesus. We're all equal under Jesus. You might find this interesting. You might want to mark this in your Bible. In Ephesians 1, Paul actually praises all three persons of the Trinity. So in verses 3 through 6, he's praising the Father for what he's done. In verses 7 through 12, he's praising the Son. And in verses 13 and 14, he's giving praise to the Holy Spirit. He's praising all three persons of the Trinity. Now in verse 7, it continues with Jesus as the subject now, and it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. 
And this is the great obstacle, it's the great stumbling stone with Christianity, is recognizing the reality of your own sin. We don't like that idea. As people, we love the idea that we can somehow be good enough, that we can elevate, we can transcend, we can raise our consciousness and our spirituality to a high enough level to become something meaningful. In our society, we have a moral code. Even if sometimes it doesn't feel like we do, we we have a moral code, and it's the basis of our justice system. We send people to jail or fine them when they violate the moral code of our culture. So the idea is that despite all our backgrounds, there's some basic things we agree upon. Killing somebody randomly, not good. Agreed? Agreed. Okay. We have a moral code for our society. So our moral code comes from our idea of what's acceptable and what's not, what's good and what's evil. And we find that common ground, and that common ground tends to become law in our country. So we agree, even if we're atheists, that there are acceptable behaviors and unacceptable behaviors, and if you're going to be a member of this society, you cannot violate these standards. These are our standards as people. As messed up as we are, as hypocritical as we are all the time, with all our issues, these are our standards. So what do you think the standard is for God, who's perfect, doesn't have any issues, doesn't have any hypocrisy? What do you think his standard is? It's perfection, and it's not an unfair standard because we have our own, and it's based upon our standards, and he has his, and it's based upon who he is. And his standard is so high, not a single one of us could hope to attain it. Scripture says this in Romans 3.23. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all done it. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The idea is us us going to the shore and saying, here's what we're going to do. Swimming race to Hawaii. Let's do it. We all set off. You might make it like three miles further than somebody. It might be somebody that just drowns and dies 10 feet into the water. You're like, I'm doing really, really good. <laughs> Look at that guy. Here's the point, though. You get 50 miles out. You're still not making it to Hawaii. Ain't nobody making it to Hawaii. Nobody. And that's what it's like with the standard of God. It is foolishness to look around you and say, I'm meeting God's standard because I'm better than them. You're asking the wrong question. That's like a criminal going to court and saying, yeah, I know I stole some TVs, but I didn't kill anybody. That's not a sound legal argument, right? (laughs) You know, it's like we're not talking about them. We're talking about you. And this is the standard. Did you violate the standard? Yeah, I did. And that's the issue with God. There is a standard, his standard. Did you violate the standard? Yes. Every single day I violated the standard. We all need God. But in the most extraordinary turn of events, the same God who had this standard of judgment, who had to distribute justice, didn't give us justice. Our justice was served to somebody else. It was served to Jesus. And so justice was done. There was a trial. We were found guilty. But somebody got up and took the punishment in our place. Justice was served, just not to us. Just not to us. And that's why we can't stop talking about 
the blood of Jesus in church. You might find it weird, but for us, the blood of Jesus is the thing that makes us holy and blameless before God. And so I think our Heavenly Father is very serious when he says he doesn't want us to forget that. He doesn't want us to ever forget what it cost him to adopt us into his family. It cost him his only begotten son. And Jesus didn't hug his way to our redemption. Jesus didn't teach his way to our redemption. Jesus bled his way to our redemption. And we can't ever forget that. Imagine that you're being held hostage and you're being beaten and tortured every day and and one day I walk past and I say, how's life going? You say, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe it. My life is a living hell. I'm being beaten within an inch of my life every day. I I don't know how much longer I'm going to survive. And so I look at your kidnapper and I say, let him go. And the kidnapper says, okay, sure. Just give me your son instead. I don't know that I'm doing that deal. I'd be like, listen, man, I'm sorry. I hope it ends soon. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not doing that deal. Parents, probably most of you aren't doing that deal. You're not doing that deal. But imagine that while we're talking this over and you're there, I bring my son. And instead of being like, I can't believe you're doing this for me, you start cursing him. You start cursing his name. Start saying, I don't need you. Go away. Thanks for nothing. Stupid. I'd I'd be pretty much outraged. I'd grab my son and I'd say, have fun dying. That's what we've all done to Jesus in one way or another, at one time or another. We've all said, thanks for giving your life, but no thanks. I don't really need it. I don't think it's that important. We've all done it. That's why the grace of God is so extraordinary. We do not deserve it. That's why it matters so much for us. That's why it changes our whole life. That's why we can never be the same again. He's such a wonderful Savior. And because of him, we're able to stand here today and say, I have peace with God. I've been redeemed. I have peace with God. And the biggest obstacle is just our pride. It's just our pride. In 1 Corinthians, it says this. It says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God because he has opened our eyes and helped us to understand what we really have in him. The blood of Jesus says I matter to him and I must be incredibly important to him. Make sure you write that down. The blood of Jesus says I'm incredibly important to him. Our society says you should value yourself because you're terrific. You're, you're just a wonderful person. You need to write some affirmations down on a post-it note and put it on your bathroom mirror. Stand in front of the mirror and say, I am strong. I'm confident. I'm beautiful. I'm 20 pounds lighter. And you may have noticed that doesn't work. But that's what society says, right? They say, you have a self-esteem issue? You need to realize how wonderful you are. But deep down, you know, I do realize how wonderful I am. That's why I have this self-esteem problem. Because I realize I'm not that wonderful. That's what got me here in the first place. Sometimes I wonder if the things we're depressed about are really just the Holy Spirit speaking through us and helping us to understand what we really are without Jesus. Sometimes we're depressed about our inability to change 
and it's because we're right. We are unable to change without Jesus. Sometimes we're depressed because we feel like there's no hope and it's not something that needs to be cured by medicine. You have no hope if you don't have Jesus. And sometimes you just get a glimpse of who you really are and all the fluff you see on TV this doesn't do it anymore. And you just know, man, I, I just feel worthless. I don't know that that's always inaccurate. Because for the Christian, we don't believe that we have any meaning or value because we're so wonderful. We believe we have meaning and value because we were made by a creator who loves us, who planned us before he even created the earth. We believe that we matter because that same God gave his most valuable possession, his only son, to die so that we could belong to him. That's where our value comes from. It's not self-esteem, it's Christ-esteem. It's having your value come from Christ, saying that no matter how I feel, the truth, the reality, looking into those heavenly places, the reality is that he died for me today. Even if I'm feeling horrible, even if I'm feeling worthless today, the truth is he died for me today just as much as he did yesterday, just as much as he will tomorrow. And I don't matter because I'm wonderful. I matter because he's wonderful. That's where our value comes from. And once we have that understanding, we realize that we can't pay him back. Can't ever pay him back. But what we do have is we have this life as our opportunity to say thank you. I really believe that's what this life is for. We have a finite amount of time to show him that we're thankful for what he's done for us by the way we choose to live, by the way we choose to serve others. And there's a lot of people out there who say, man, man, I'm interested in Jesus, but uh, I'm not really into Christians. It's like a famous Gandhi quote. You know, I love Jesus, but I don't like his followers. And the truth is that all that means is that you don't even understand the first thing about the gospel. The gospel idea is not like, hey, there's a group of people who are just such super people that they got together and called themselves a church and they're better than everybody and they gather together to celebrate the fact that they're better than everybody. To be a Christian, you have to say, I'm screwed. I'm screwed. I need a savior. I need a healer. There's nothing I can do to be good enough and I need help. That's the starting point of Christianity. It's the most humble starting point of any faith in the world. It's a starting point of humility. And once you realize that, you can't look at other people and say, oh man, I'm so much better than them. Because you've had your eyes opened by Jesus. Maybe you're, you're in worship with your hands raised and then suddenly a person's walking by and they're like, excuse me, excuse me, I gotta get to my seat. And you're thinking, oh, I was about to see the face of Jesus and you bump me? Ah, oh, I mean, I, lo I love all this, but these people, these people, Ah, oh, oh, I love Jesus. Don't, don't talk to me. No, I don't want to say hi to you. No, I'm worshiping. Maybe, maybe that's you. I love Jesus, but I can't stand his people. But the problem is you're one of them, right? That's the problem. We're all one of his people. We all belong to him. And so in light of that, we treat other people not based upon their value to us, but based upon their value to God. We don't treat people based upon their value to us. We treat people based upon their value to God. That's why we love one another. It's not because we're a super secret club, but it's because we want to see other people the way that Jesus sees them. We want to see other people the way that Jesus sees them.
It's the one thing we have in common, the one thing that connects us. And when you get that, then you begin to say, wow, I'm surrounded by all these other people that God has chosen and called and accepted. And you find that God gives you a love for people, even if they drive you crazy. Because God opens your eyes to see who they really are. Man, that's my brother. That's my sister. For real, my brother and my sister. And I love them. I want to take care of them. I want to make sure that they experience the love of God at church today. John 13, 35, it says this. By this all will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. I want to be very clear. That one another is not talking about people outside the church. It's talking about people inside the church. And Jesus is saying, this is how they'll know that you belong to me. Because you love each other in a way that normal people don't. You love each other with a selflessness and a kindness and a grace that the world doesn't. Most of the relationships that the world has are all based upon mutual interest. Yeah, I want to be your friend as long as there's something in it for me. And we're supposed to be different. There's nothing in it for you when you're changing a stinky diaper, holding a baby in the nursery at church. You do it because you love the person. You love the child. That's why you do it. And so if we really get this, people will look at the church and they'll say, those people love each other in a way that's not normal. Something wrong with those people. That's not normal. Why do they love each other that way? Why do they care about each other that way? Those, those two have nothing in common. Those two should hate each other. But they're doing what? That's amazing. That's the identifying mark is that we have love for one another. And so if you're here today and you've been in that place where you're like, I do love Jesus. I love his teachings. They're so noble. They're so practical. They're so helpful. I just don't like church. I just don't like people there. don't like people there. You're missing the whole point of the gospel. You're missing the whole point of the gospel. Scripture says people that don't know God love people who are just like them. It's no great accomplishment, you know. Yeah, I love Christians. I'm just looking for a group of them that are exactly like me. <laughs> right? Whoa, what a radical love you have. Where did that come from? When you say, you know what I do is I, I go to church every Sunday and about half the time I'm in the nursery holding somebody else's kid. Are you like related to them? No, it's just like what I do to make sure that they can go to church and experience the love of God. People have no idea how to respond to that because it's an uncommon love. It's an uncommon kindness. So while we're here, I, I just want to encourage you to think and pray. Go home today and think about this, or maybe you know right now, but here at New Hope, we're doing these preview services once a month as we head into starting weekly services in February, and that's the kind of church that we're trying to build. We're trying to build a church full of people that are all willing to say, I need Jesus. I need Jesus every day, every week. I need him. I'm never going to graduate past that. And I love him, and because I love him, I love his people. And that's what we're trying to build here. If you want to be a part of that, just check the box to get more information about the launch team. I'll get in touch with you. I'll get you plugged in so that you can start being the love of Jesus to other people as well. And you're going to see God use you. Let's continue here. Paul says that what the Ephesians have is every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. We head towards verse 8. It says, speaking of Jesus, he did this all according to the riches of his grace which he made abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Jesus did all this because just like the Father, this is just who he is. He did it in all wisdom and prudence. That means that Jesus didn't come down to earth and, be, and say, I'm going to come down to earth. I'm going to figure out some way to fix all this. And he's like, what? I have to die? 
In all wisdom and prudence means Jesus knew what it was going to cost him before he ever came to earth. It gets even more amazing. Jesus knew what it was going to cost him to make us his before he even created the earth, before he ever created us. He knew we would rebel. He knew we'd choose to reject him. And he still created us. He still made us, knowing what it would cost him one day. Because having children that belong to him, that choose to love him, means everything to him. It's meaningful to him. And if there's one thing you hear today, I would want it to be this. Jesus loves you. God loves you. He loves you so much right where you are, right where you're at. He loves you, and he's not waiting for you to change before you come to him. He's calling you to him so you can be changed by his love, by the Holy Spirit. God loves you. Don't ever doubt that. And because he loves you, he chose you before the foundations of the earth to be his. Because he loves you, he chose you to be adopted into his family and to belong to him. We're so blessed to have a God that loves us that way. He's so generous. He's so good. We have everything in Jesus that we could possibly need. Everything we could possibly need.